0: to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for all things Human Factors, Psychology, and Design.
1: Hey, what's going on, everybody? This is Blake Armsdorf, one of your hosts of Human Factors Cast, and here is a special episode of Human Factors Cast. This is one of our interviews from this year's HFES 2019 Anthem annual conference that Svi Spivak was able to grab for us while he was out there attending the conference and it's with none other than Chris Wickens. So for over 30 years Chris Wickens' research has focused on the interface between basic research and applied area of human factors and of course a lot of us know him for a lot of attention research if you're into basic psychology but nonetheless this is an awesome interview and Svi was actually lucky enough to talk to Chris Wickens' two times so this is a part one of a part two but without further ado i hope you enjoy this first interview from hfes 2019 here's chris wickens hi everyone this is space Svivak speaking from human factors and ergonomic society annual meeting i have the pleasure to be speaking today with dr chris wickens who is professor emeritus in the department of psychology at the university of illinois at urbana champaign As well, he holds an adjunct professorship at the University of Colorado uh, and has previously been head of Aviation Human Factors Division. Welcome to the show, Chris. Okay, correction. Colorado State University, not University of Colorado. Okay. Yeah. That's uh, that's an important distinction 40 40 miles separate and uh, rivals. Okay. That's typically how they are, right? Michigan and Michigan Michigan State. Yeah. Um, So thank you for the correction. Uh, Welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, So you have... You're you're quite infamous. I think most of our listeners, if not all of them, know who you are. If not by your intro to Human Factors textbook or your uh, advanced textbook in engineering psychology and human performance, um, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're doing here at the the meeting today and how you came here? Starting from when? Uh, let's start from let's start from your PhD at Ann Arbor.
0: Yeah. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so. Uh- Well, actually, let me start even before that, uh, very quickly. Both my parents were psychologists. I had no interest in psychology whatsoever growing up in the household. Went, started to study geology uh, as an undergraduate, kind of got tired of geology because too much of it was mineralogy, looking at crystals inside, and I wanted to be outside. so but I did take an inspirational psychology course from George Miller magic number seven plus or minus two he got me interested in psychology I wound up with a degree in physical sciences which is important because I was thinking quantitatively about the physics and but did apply to the graduate school and got in at Ann Arbor uh, University of Michigan I had an inspirational advisor Dick Pugh who really taught me that there are applications to psychology because I went into the program thinking just pure uh, experimental psychology. Uh, Dick Pugh got me very much involved with manual control, tracking, airplane control, and control theory, mixing psychology then with engineering. And so I came out, um, well, two years at Michigan. Then I went into the Navy because of the draft and uh, that was the Vietnam War period. Spent three years in the military, um, actually a year in Vietnam, then came back to graduate school, finished up there um, in 74, with uh, beginning to be a commitment of what psychology is good for in terms of human system design particularly aerospace design, designing cockpits and so forth. University of Illinois was looking for a person who could, an experimental psychologist who could also interface with their Institute of Aviation, where they also had one of the first aviation psychology programs in the country, and they were really looking for a psychologist to do the interfacing to, between good experimental psychology and cockpit design, measures of pilot performance, pilot training. And apparently I was like the one candidate out there that had both of those skills (laughs) and uh, applied to the job. I was rejected by several places at that time, but they uh, Illinois did accept me. And uh, so I started on my career as a uh, assistant professor there. Uh, doing experimental research, but also doing, putting a lot of it in the context of, of the cockpit and uh, understanding the pilot and his or her performance limitations. Uh, so, pause. I, I guess I'll go back again to Michigan because um, in my dissertation <coughs> at Michigan, which was really a dissertation looking at multitasking or time sharing at that time. And there were very few time sharing experiments. Um, I was interested in the concept of dividing attention between tasks. I was absolutely inspired by the book written by Danny Kahneman, which is attention called and Attention and Effort. Nice. And I read that book and I read it like a Bible. I mean, it was uh, just inspiring to me um, the relation between attention and effort, um, and then later decision-making, but that, that comes later, and uh, so that's why I really wanted to follow the study of dual tasking in the cockpit, and that became my, you know, passion for the at least the first probably ten years while I was at University of Illinois. Um, I was well supported by the Institute of Aviation. I was initially supported fairly well by the psychology department and then Emmanuel Donchin or Manny Donchin took over as department head and he was really a champion of trying to make the link between good theory and psychology and good applications. And he um, was very supportive of our efforts to link the Institute of Aviation which trains pilots with the department of psychology that looks at the research. And for those of you that know Manny Donchard, he had another interest in terms of evoked brain potentials, and he was at that time one of the, the fathers of looking at ERPs. So it was actually a three-way linkage of um, uh, psychophysiology, aviation applications, and solid uh, experimental psychology of attention. Wow! And I was uh, kind of right in the middle of the, that trilogy, and did have the fortune of working in Manny Donchin's lab, learning a good deal about um, cognitive psychophysiology and particularly evoke brain potentials, but then trying to apply those uh,
1: in applied environments. Wow, that's a lot. I, I think that our audiences know that you're um, an author, an educator, a professor, um, Chris, is also, you're also a mountain climber, I just found out, uh, but you're also a war vet, and I, uh, that's, that's quite neat. Um, but it seems like all these experiences that you've had, including your degree in physical sciences and your experience in the Navy, uh, that allowed you to sort of be at the center of this Venn diagram, if you will, of, this, of these different disciplines that haven't necessarily been related before, right?
0: Uh, or at least, well, the, the core of the relationship... Certainly between psychology and aviation came out of Paul Fitz and his classic work you know really in the for, late 40s and 50s out of World War II. The linkage with the uh, bio-physiology bio-physi- really hadn't been done until uh, very much until we started it. I, I guess the other thing I want to throw out there real quickly is uh, my Navy experience was twofold. The first one was being a damage control assistant on board ship. And uh, part of the task is when there's a crisis on the ship, whether it's a fire or a leak, uh, you're the person that integrates information from all over the ship about its ability to withstand damage. It is a huge information integration. Process, it challenges attention to the utmost to take all the different streams of information, put them together in a coherent picture of what's happens and what needs to be done. And so I kind of experienced at the sharp end of information overload in high crisis environments, even though I never had any real damage, but a lot of simulation training for that. And uh, so that was very informative for me in terms of the role of attention. Uh, then I got assigned to Vietnam primarily uh, working with a unit whose job was to improve communications between the American advisors and their Vietnamese counterparts. so it was a fascinating look at a very different side of applied psychology, the psychology of really cross cultural psychology uh, and I found that a very, very intriguing experience that didn't really transfer much back to Michigan where I went back into the world of experimental psychology,
1: but it certainly opened my eyes. So you've you've had a lot of life experiences that have led you to these interests that have then become your academic pursuits. Particularly in the Navy. Particularly in the Navy. uh,
0: You know, a lot of people at that time you know, it was really a misfortune to because of the Vietnam War, you were pulled away from academics. I would join the navy, so I didn't wasn't
1: going to be drafted into the army. But it turned out to be a very valuable experience and one that I really look back on. Amazing. With, with and of, would you say that that experience and then what you were saying earlier about your um, noticing of the lack of? research and literature on attention and task sharing, is that what led you then to develop your well-known theories of multiple resource theory and the Sieve I, model of attention?
0: I think so. Um, the, uh, I, I mean, psychologists at that time were typically studying single tasks, and it wasn't, they just weren't thinking about putting tasks in combination. But given the complexity of each single task, you know, you're now multiplying, you're squaring essentially the complexity of the interactions between those tasks. And um, It turned out my dissertation gave rise to data that indicated that what caused interference between two tasks was not just how hard the two tasks were, that's intuitive, but also whether the two tasks demanded the same or different processes within the brain. Now in hindsight it seems that's fairly logical, fairly self-evident but it wasn't all that self-evident at that time because there weren't that many people doing that research. Uh, Barry Kantowitz at Purdue had done a similar study and came up with similar conclusions and we collaborated on that. And then Danny Gopher, who uh, actually was Danny Kahneman's graduate student, uh, but he did a, a sabbatical at the Institute of Aviation, at Illinois, which is where I was, and so Danny and I worked together and he also, Danny Gopher, from his work with Danny Kahneman, had a keen interest in attention and multitasking. And so Danny Gopher and I collaborated a lot with, uh, because we were both there, we did some experiments together, out of which emerged this concept that you could predict Um, interference between tasks, not just by how hard they were, but by the extent to which they used similar versus different brain structure, that is multiple resources. Um, And then from that I started looking at the data, the set of the data that could inform us what those multiple resources actually were. Danny Gopher wrote a beautiful paper, a theoretical paper in Psych Review, that sort of talked about the concept of multiple resources, almost from an economic standpoint. Um, And then I took, uh, summarized all the experimental data I could find at that time, which wasn't a whole lot, put it together and came up with this idea of three dimensions of multiple resources, which has since expanded a little bit.
1: The fourth, right, of ambient and focal vision? The fourth uh, is vision. ambient
0: versus focal vision, right.
1: yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So so that's a, that actually leads me to a question I was interested in asking you about is, you know, you've gone so far and you've talked to us about the the evolution of this model and how it started from an economic standpoint um, and how it is where it is today. and Like we just mentioned, a fourth dimension was added. What gap do you think there still might be in, I mean obviously we haven't figured out attention fully, but what gaps do you think there still are in the models of attention that still requires researchers and practitioners to explore? Okay, let me talk about
0: two gaps. Um, One is within the multiple There's there's still a lot to be done and one of the big issues i think is is there a general single resource that sits on top of all the multiple resources homunculus the analogy uh, whether it's a homunculus or something a general capacity the analogy in uh, intelligence is we have all these different intelligence but somehow there's a g factor sitting on top as the right? general oh general gen- general right. intelligence yeah so i think the issue of what causes the competitions between two tasks that seem to differ in all of the other resources, and yet still there is something that it's competing for? Whether it's a homunculus, whether it's executive control, executive management, um, you know, we don't know, and we don't know exactly how important it is, how much weight that uh, bears compared to the separate resources. So that's a key issue. But the related issue is multiple resources only applies when people are actually trying to do things concurrently. You know, And as you're driving and talking on the phone, clearly there's concurrent processing going on. Your visual system is taking in the flow of the roadway. Again, that's your ambient vision at the same time. And truly concurrently, you're conversing, you're understanding the verbal material. Texting, on the other hand, we move that flow of verbal material from the vision to the, I'm sorry, from the ears to the eye, suddenly you're no longer in a concurrent processing mode. You've essentially abruptly switched to discrete switching from one place to the other. Same thing happens when two tasks gets extremely hard, right? If I'm trying to plan my schedule and do my interview with you, I can sort of do them concurrently except when the planning becomes really tough and suddenly I'll either shut you out and go to planning or vice versa. So there's kind of this regression from a concurrent mode to a switching mode. You know, We'd like to know where that regression is. It's some this magic red line of capacity and when you've exceeded that, you regress to the switching mode but then once we get into the switching mode now we look at a whole different domain of multitasking which is discrete switching from one task to another and it goes kind of hand in hand with the concurrent processing mode but different factors we're now in the world of decision making which is another world I love and was inspired by Dan by Kahneman's work, Kahneman Tversky's work but what causes people to decide to switch from task A to sw- to task B, what causes you to decide to go back to task E, B, or go to something else. And so this has now become, I would say, a second current major interest of ma- mine in multitasking is developing this model of task switching. you want to pause? No, we're uh, good. Yeah. Sorry. And task switching in a much more complex real world environment then a lot of the task switching literature paradigms in experimental psychology which is like switching from classifying digits as high to low and now you're classifying them as odd even hmm. sort of thing but this is the heterogeneous task switching of the the pilot or of the astronaut in Apollo 13 that suddenly has a crisis in their lap and now they have to communicate they have to diagnose the problem they have to get you know and figure out their safety routines and you really can't do parallel processing here. The question is what do you do and do you prioritize in the right direction? Are you driven by what is the most important task, or are you driven by the what is the most salient task, the task that's sort of clamoring for your attention? Or are you driven by the task that you like, your this idea of interest? And so this is all turned into what we call the STOM model, strategic task overload model, which is now of a decision model applied to the choice of what activities to do when you're over that red line, when you're no longer able to concurrently process.
1: And so on that note, and previous, what you said previously about one of the gaps you still think are present in this model of attention, do you think that maybe this construct or this uh, overriding configurator uh, could sort of relate to that STAW model and sort of by understanding what that missing, overriding construct is, we can you know, further explore that task sharing?
0: Yeah, I mean, we think, you know, this is where the homeworkness comes in because we do think that there is a higher level cognitive decision making that's making these decisions sometimes explicitly, sometimes implicitly, uh, about discreetly where to shine the attention flashlight. Uh, I make the analogy between the eyeball and the mind ball. Let me uh, expound on that. We think of the eyeball as, again, a discrete task switching mechanism. The eyeball is deciding where to look and harnesses the neck, sometimes if you've got to rotate your neck, And and we've developed a model of visual scanning. Standing on the work of John Senders, who was honored yesterday for his his death and his tremendous contributions, he had an original model of scanning. We've elaborated on that. That looks at the decision of where to look. But and so that's moving the eyeball around the visual space. But I like to think of the analogy of now moving the mind ball around the cognitive space, as very analogous to moving the eyeball around the visual space. In fact, oftentimes they're coupled when we're doing all visual tasks. Both of those models, our model of visual scanning called SIEVE, and the model of cognitive scanning, multitask scanning called STOM, are based on this idea. They're multi-attribute decision models. The focus is on the decision of where attention goes. In one case it's visual
1: attention and in the other case it's mental attention <coughs> to tasks. I think Dan Dennett would have an issue with that uh, idea of homunculus, but who, who would Dan Dennett yeah. Uh, yeah, philosopher um. yeah
0: and and so so do other multitask researchers I, I mean I had greatly admire the work of Salviucci and Tutkin. They have a threaded cognition model that basically says your, all your attention switching can be based su- simply on the relationship between the demands and the supply and you know, if demands exceeds supply, you've got to do something else. Uh, it, it's a multiple resource model as well, and it's good,
1: a yeah, good competitor. Wow. So. so you still have an interest in all this uh, throughout all the years that you've been working on attention and task sharing, and this is still, uh, would you say, one of your passions in the field of um, attention? It's, it's my one of my passions. I've,
0: I, I hate to say I've, I've left multiple resources behind, but in terms of the research I'm doing, I'm no longer really doing, I'm letting, you know, other people do it, and keeping track of their developments. Uh, I'm very much involved in both the Sieve model of scanning, the STOM model of the mind ball of task switching, that's a current interest of mine. Um, I am also almost on a parallel path getting, I've always been fascinated with the decision-making and the Kahneman, Tversky heuristics. And the relationship between heuristics and effort, and how we tend to adopt heuristics when our supply of resources are limited. So, most recently, we have uh, taken up an interest in looking at the role of decision making.
2: We okay, we're in
0: an interview here. So. Okay. Um, to uh, yeah. Uh, and looking at the role of prediction in decision-making, how well our decisions are based on the predictions of what will happen, because usually what we choose to do now is not based on what's happening now, but what will be happening in the future. But how generally poor we are at prediction, and all of the biases that come in to prediction. And... In particular, our overconfidence, and so I'm really interested in the issue of overconfidence in the knowledge of what we know now, but also of what is going to happen in the future. So that is a, a new domain of research. It borrows on a lot of the older work in attention and limited resources, because it is the limited resources that lead to a lot of these uh, biases, I think, in heuristics. Uh, but it's it 's a somewhat different application, and it draws me into the world of decision making that i 've al- I've always admired i 've admired it for probably fifty years now uh, and uh, well, since whenever the Kahneman Tversky Heuristics paper was published, and actually even before that in graduate student in graduate school where there was a decision science group in Michigan that I was interested in and so i 'm now actually being able to to bring that into, into the, the current research. And we have a model of how people understand variability um, and uh, that we're uh, proposing. We've given some papers on, as well. well that's so it's, it's, it's kind of a parallel uh, research track with the research I'm currently doing on decision making and task switching and visual switching. But it's got a a slightly different application. Uh, The application goes back to, um, you know, it's very, very, actually it goes back to the Navy because a lot of this was driven by the decision of ship drivers or officers of the watch of how to maneuver to avoid a collision and how those decisions may be made uh, with an imperfect knowledge of where the ship is going, poor prediction of where the ship is going.
1: So, I think that's, we have about time for one more question or so, Yeah. Um, so you said earlier how you're kind of focusing now on the the mind ball and the eyeball, and we're talking about attentional scanning as well, and I noticed that uh, you have a couple presentations this week, Uh, you yourself may not be presenting, but people that you've supervised are on attentional scanning, in different domains, and I was at the talk yesterday on attentional scanning and expertise in rock climbing, yeah. um, and I understand that you and I both have an interest in rock climbing, so is there anything you want to tell the audience uh, about this that you find super interesting? or it, it,
0: it is incredibly challenging. We have an eye movement camera for their climbers, but to understand what they're looking at, it's, a, it's almost a data extraction problem. Um, I, I haven't talked much about all the work I did in aviation psychology. That's where the scanning work started, it was looking at how pilots scan the instrument panel. Um, but the instrument panel is simple. There's six instruments laid out in front of the pilot in an outside world. You know exactly where they're looking. And it's very tractable for modeling scanning. That's where the Sieve model came from. We've tried to move it to these different applications, uh, the operating room, for example. And then most recently, Ann McLaughlin in North Carolina State, who's also a climber, said, let's take the Sieve model and try to apply it to climbing. And so that's what we're trying to do, understanding where climbers look and the difference between the scan pattern of experts and novices. But we've also applied the STOM model to climbing, the task switching model, in terms of climbers deciding when to switch between moving upwards and placing protection, which is a, safe, a, a trade-off between a productivity activity of going upwards and a safety activity of placing your protection. And so this task switching between safety and productivity is a very interesting phenomenon in its own right that pervades all of human factors. So we found climbing as a, a fun playground to, to
1: exercise those those yeah. kinds of things, those trade-offs. And it seems like you can also incorporate your more recent uh, endeavors into decision-making and sort of economic Absolutely. behaviors, right? Because that is an economic behavior, productivity act- or safety. And- yeah,
0: and different values, different uh, underlie the, the, those two different endeavors in every industry, particularly every safety critical industry you can imagine. Wow. And so much of my career was devoted to aviation psychology, in aviation
1: human factors where that trade-off between productivity and safety is 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 vital well wow. Well Chris, it was an absolute pleasure talking to you today, and thank you once again for taking the time to talk to the Human Factors cast. I'm uh, just going to finish off the way we typically end these episodes, uh, with a Human Factors Mantra. Um, so on the count of three, if you don't mind staying with me, it depends, uh, we will do that and then finish off like that. One, two... Can you elaborate? It depends. Oh, so um, typically when asked a question about Human Factors, oh. um, an answer might be it's not so black and white always of yeah. whether do this or that so it depends what's the context who are the operators and so uh, on this podcast that's our that's our sign off so um on the count of three if you don't mind joining me and saying the words it depends oh and we'll sign just it just off Just the words just the words yeah it depends it depends okay on, on three synchronize two three it, it depends, depends.